This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. I wanted to start off this week's episode by saying thank you so much, not only to everyone who tunes in, but reviews. We've gotten some lovely reviews over the last couple of weeks. Gwig, you said, I just started listening to your podcast two months ago and I wish I started earlier. I never used to have an interest in science, but as you grow older, you begin to realise that everything can be explained with science. Demo20 said, Science with Dr. Carl feels like a weekly meditation while also gaining some great random knowledge. And Miney52, you love listening while you're playing in your garden. Yes, no matter where you're listening from, thank you so much for being with us. And in this episode, we chat the power of a camera lens, targeted painkillers, amnesia, and a sperm fact you will never forget. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Dr. Carl, how are you feeling? Um, feeling extra peachy keen, like it's lovely weather. Um, we might be doing something about climate change, mm. etc. We are ready. And, and last and, week, and we've got an answer from last week. Exactly, we yes. had a big episode. We had some very divisive opinions on the text line: re protein, protein mm. when you are working out. And we might be on to something. We've got Pete here from Penrith. Dr. Pete, you're an exercise physiologist and scientist. And we had a question about the best time to take protein. And is it more a case of, you know, taking it across the day or in one big hit? What What's the verdict? Yeah. Hi, Dr. Lucy, Dr. Carl. Um, it turns out that way back in 2004, um, I was the lead research assistant on uh, a PhD study on pretty much exactly this particular question. Um, and the PhD study was done, conducted by uh, Associate Professor Stephen Bird, who's now up there at Uni of Southern Queensland there. And we had a really great outcome and, and put some great detail into the answer of this. It turned out that the timing of protein ingestion was best during the, the musculature workout. During? During, that's right. So while you're being active and breaking down muscle tissue by working out, um, there's a cellular environment that tends to be more muscle wasting. And what we were able to do with the combination of nutrients, protein, but not just protein, there was a particular profile of, of protein, eight different amino acids. And there was another element to this, which was a carbohydrate solution. Uh, 6% sugar, basically. Not only when you put the protein during the workout, but the carbohydrate solution with the protein during the workout, we had a brilliant effect on providing the cellular environment with what's called an anti-catabolic environment. So we're minimizing muscle breakdown while maximizing muscle buildup at the time of training. So those people that have their protein shake with them during a workout and they've got it next to their weights and they're kind of having a sip every now and then, that's the best method. Yeah. It, so it is. But, but tell me, is this for average people or is it for prime athletes? Both. I've got a bit of background there. Uh, in my clinical roles and certainly the research was done on, on everyday people, we were able to get and I'll round up to, I'll round, use round numbers, we were getting uh, double the average muscle growth, but in half the time. Wow. How much muscle growth would you get per month averaged out across your group? 
Well, I couldn't remember. That's that's some some time ago. But where where the numbers were, we were getting double the average in in half that particular time frame. Now with athletes, um, I've been fortunate to coach some Olympic athletes, and particularly within our power athletes, we were able to get improvements in power generation of their key muscles of up to 67% by utilizing some particular training, but focusing on the nutrient timing and what goes into those nutrients during the training session. Wow. So firstly, you're saying that there are 20 amino acids and you found that eight of them were specifically applicable in this case. So that's pretty subtle. And then I seem to remember reading about how having some carbohydrate around at the same time helps the protein get into the cells. Is that still, have I got that right or am I missing the boat on that? Something around that. Yes. So uh, with regards to the breakdown, uh, we have a release of cortisol, a hormone called cortisol from the pituitary gland in the brain, and that floods the bloodstream. It's a stress hormone. When we're stressed, that's cortisol. And that had a particular effect, a very marked effect on accelerating the breakdown in the muscle while someone is lifting weight, pumping iron training. And what we found that if we could attenuate to minimize the amount of cortisol secreted, uh, we could minimize and suppress that muscle breakdown side of the equation. And that's what the carbohydrates did. A 6% carbohydrate solution had a really strong effect on minimizing the the, um, cortisol being released into the blood and knocking on knocking the head on that that muscle wasting side of the, the, the equation. Okay, just one last philosophical question then. Why is there this disconnect between certain parts of academic physiological knowledge and what the bodybuilders do in the gym? And I've been hearing bodybuilders saying, look, I've got to have some cake with this. And one guy tried it and he was putting on more muscle so that I'm seeing the carbohydrate thing. Question, why is there this disconnect between the academic side and what you see in the gym? Yeah, look, for the past 17 years, I've had a lot of exposure <laughs> to uh, bodybuilders in the gym, etc. the everyday trainer or the, the amateur professional. And I'll be honest, Dr. Google's got a lot of res- got to take a lot of responsibility for that. Mm. But also the limited literacy of the bodybuilders themselves to go and invest in in the professional opinion and the professional services, uh, rather than talking amongst themselves or searching up Dr. Google or using a lot of anecdotal traditions in the bodybuilding industry. Mm. Rather than the employing and engaging with the services of of people in the exercise physiology profession, uh, so on and so on. Pete, you've just given us a lesson. I love this. Thank you so much for jumping on and telling us more, not only about the PhD but also day to day, and also that if people do want to get into protein, that the best time to do it is during the workout. David from Wongol Country. What do you want to do? What do you want to kick us off with? Hi, doctors. Uh, I've got a question about uh, viscosity and custard. I notice that when you do your shopping, custard is often sold uh, in litres and yoghurt is often sold in kilograms. So somewhere between the viscosity of, cu- of custard and the viscosity of yoghurt is the difference between a solid and a liquid. Mm. So I wanted to know um, how do you define that and is there a unit of measurement for dis- viscosity and what, 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 what's that all about? Um, yes, they do measure viscosity. It's a whole big field. The field overall is called rheology, R-H, 
E-O-L-O-G-Y. Rio from the Greek to flow, as in diarrhea. You know, stuff is flowing. You got the squirts. And <laughs> ology means to logos, to write. So you're an expert in that field. And so there are units of viscosity. I can't remember what they are, but I'm sure Wikipedia has them. And you've noticed this weird thing that as you go from less viscous to more viscous, somewhere along the line you change from liquid, uh, you get measuring in litres, volume, into measuring in kilograms. What are, You're so observant. I just mm. love you as, a, as an observer of the universe. And viscosity, that's a good word as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find the unit here on Wikipedia, but I can't do it and talk at the same time, so I'll just say look it up on Wikipedia. And there is a unit, but you're so observant. And, and so apart from the viscosity, what else can I help you with? Uh, well, that's about it. So it that's just it. sounds like uh, there's, um, you know, there's a line between, like the definition of it might be that if you can pour it, it's mm. a liquid or a solid or well, is that right? It, it gets messy because if you look at the planet Earth, the outside is solid and if you're thinking about the Earth like a soccer ball in size, the solid bit is like a sheet of paper wrapped around a soccer ball. That's six to 60 kilometres thick. Halfway from the surface down to the middle, you've got what's called the mantle and it kind of flows, but it's they don't count as a liquid and they don't count as uh, like, kind of like lava but more gloopy than lava and it will flow under pressure. And, in fact, if you get a column of steel many kilometres high, it will flow just from the weight of the steel above it. So even a solid will flow with enough force. Remember the motto of the American Air Force, the unofficial motto, with enough energy a pig will fly, with enough weight a solid will flow. And then inside the earth you've got then from halfway down to the centre you've got a ball of liquid iron and then a ball of solid iron. So, so this whole solid liquid thing, it's, it's a huge field. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm bowing out of it, but thank you for being so observant. I'm so impressed by you looking at this stuff as you can walk around the supermarket. You rock. You are a god of observation <laughs> and units. And by the way, the field of measuring is called metrology, M-E-T-R-O-L-O-G-Y. And Lord Kelvin said, to measure is to know. Can somebody put that into a song for us? Maybe I can get Wet Leg to put it into a song. <laughs> to measure is to know. To I think Wet Leg would know. do that. Yeah, it's a little bit quick. Okay. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ask them it. Splinter. David. Thanks, doctors. Take that into your day. Thank you, Dr. David. Thank you for starting us off on good citizen science. We've got Samantha here from Boyne Island. Samantha, you got a question about painkillers? I do. Thanks, doctors. Uh, My question is, how do painkillers and anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen and paracetamol, how do they know where to go to target pain and inflammation? You always hear on the ads they're targeting the pain and inflammation. So how do they know where to go? I, I know. I'm, I'm with you, Dr. Samantha. They're lying to you. Who would have thought that somebody <laughs> in advertising would lie to you? So what happens is that they spread pretty evenly through the whole body. Of course, um, there are barriers in certain places, like there's a thing called the blood-brain barrier, which tends to preserve your brain and spinal cord as a separate little entity. And of course, if you've got you know, like a very thick tissue, it'll take longer to diffuse. What happens is that they basically go everywhere in the body and where you're having pain, certain reactions are happening, chemical reactions, certain chemicals are being manufactured, certain receptors on cells are activated and they will block those receptors. So you've got 37 trillion cells in your body and you have chemical reactions going on with those cells on the receptors. They're like a lock and a key. And these receptors can suddenly pop into existence and start being active and then the 
uh, painkiller or anti-inflammatory will land on them and uh, stop them from being activated. So with the case of opiates, they will land on opiate receptors and in the medical profession they have a drug called Narcan or Naloxone. So imagine somebody, you're injecting somebody with morphine to kill their pain um, and what happens is the morphine molecule jumps onto the receptor and then jumps off and jumps on and jumps off and jumps on and jumps off but it's doing it all the time and so you're not feeling any pain. Suppose you as a medical person have accidentally given them too much and they start to drop dead on you. You then give them Narcan. The Narcan will land on the opiate receptor and stay there. It'll get off after a few hours, but it'll, it'll block the uh, opiate from working. So uh, the way that the drug knows to work is that it goes to a place where there are specific chemical reactions or receptors happening. Now, this is something I just read in Nature last week. Now, here, here it comes. This, this kind of hurts me to say it. <laughs> Anti-inflammatory drugs can turn out to be good in the shirt, short term, but based on experiments we're doing with rats, a Ukrainian professor at Harvard, it seems that they might lead to long-term pain. This is fairly brand new research. I read on, I heard on a Nature podcast last week. So be careful with the anti-inflammatories. Like don't go overboard on them uh, if you're worried about long-term pain. But you don't want to have short-term pain. Pain doesn't make you a better person. Just keep that in the back of your head. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Uh, someone actually, my housemate told me a quote yesterday from a seminar she went to. Pain can be normal. Suffering isn't. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, what a deep housemate you have. They should meet up with David in the supermarket <laughs> and start discussing philosophy. <laughs> you know what, actually, we've gotten some texts in. Both re honey. Someone saying, just check the honey in my cupboard and it is measured in grams. Joel said honey is also measured in grams and kilograms and its viscosity changes drastically depending on temperature. Wow. Mm. We've got Claire here in Sydney. Dr. Dr. Claire? Claire, got a question about tea. I do. Um, so I love a good cup of tea like the next person. Mm -hmm. um, but what I've noticed is when I make a cup of black tea that's caffeinated, the tea diffuses really evenly through the whole cup really quickly. But when I make decaffeinated black tea, the tea settles on the bottom of the cup and the water above that is clear. And I'm always using freshly boiled hot water. So I just wondered why are they diffusing differently? Oh, my God. With regular tea, the brownish colour is all the way through the liquid. With decaffeinated tea, the brownish colour settles at the bottom. And you have observed yeah. this. Yeah, Have you written it down or <laughs> taken photographs? No. Oh, you're so <laughs> close to getting a Triple J fun pack. Remember, the difference between science and screwing around is writing it down or at least taking a photograph. <laughs> Nevertheless, we love you to pieces. Now, is this tea leaves or tea bags? Tea bags. I'm guessing that what's happening is that... Uh, okay, let me just back off again. Um, normally, things will go down a gradient. So if you've got a ball on a hill, it'll roll down the hill. If you've got a, gup, uh, a bowl of water and you put one drop of dye in the middle, it will gradually spread all the way across. And so you would expect the chemicals associated with the decaffeinated tea to spread all the way through the liquid. Now, there are two things that are stopping them. One is gravity. And so maybe the chemicals are left behind 
after the caffeine has been taken out, are, are, are heavy molecules rather than lighter molecules, or maybe two. They're temperature sensitive because the top will be colder than the... Oh, no, because hot water rises, but then it loses heat through the top. This is truly deep. I think this would be a great science experiment for somebody to do and try and solve and could very well get them an Ig Nobel Prize. I don't have the answer, but you have opened a can of worms mm. here. <laughs> wow, Dr. Claire, this is so observant of you. Can you do it again and take photographs and, and then uh, sort of ring into us again and then if you can send us that through the Triple J website, is there some sort of way? Triple J, yeah, text line 0439 yep. And Claire, are you noticing this because you're making it in a glass cup, mug? No, just a regular mug. But ah. like you can, so you can see from the top? Yeah, because it's right at the bottom. It's only like a few mils yeah. at the bottom. It's all dark and the rest is all clear. Can I ask you, is the cup light-coloured, like yeah, white-coloured rather than dark-coloured, so it stands out more easily? Uh, I guess so. Or, or can Why you see it even in a, in a dark <laughs> cup, like a black cup? Um, I don't have any black cups. So. Okay, photographs, Claire, a bit of documentation, <laughs> a few words. You could be in line for a fun pack. We got Ben here in the Blue Mountains. Ben, you got a question about the Hadron Collider? Yeah. I'd, so, hi, Dr. Lucy, Dr. Carl. Hi. Um, yeah, I've read up a bit about it, and they've been finding some higher density metals. And I just wanted to, to know what Dr. Carl's views on you know, how far away we were to be having cleaner fusion from having these metals, so as we can actually contain the fusion reaction that's happening. Okay, so first we're talking about pure research. And one example, in your phone are seven different technologies, such as the CCD and the Wi-Fi, each of which was invented by people working on pure research, paid for by a government, blue sky research that would have no application that they could think of at the time, but later turned out to be essential for making your phone work. So to get the Wi-Fi, the way we developed that was that John O'Sullivan in 1972 started looking for black holes and that led to Wi-Fi. Look it up. I've done a story about it, right? So that's the first yep. thing about pure research. Second thing about pure research, if you look at medical research, there's pure and there's applied. Let's look at the pure medical research where they're looking at, you know, sodium receptors on liver cells. It turns out that of all of the pure research, as opposed to let's find a drug for this sort of asthma, of all the pure research, within 10 years, two-thirds is mentioned in a patent. So it pays off. So the Large Hadron Collider is doing pure research and it will pay off. Like the overall investment, this just came through recently in Australia, the return on investment is 500% in 10 years. If you put $1 into science research after 10 years, you get $5 back. That is an amazing return, right? Because <laughs> normally people are thinking, if I can get 5% a year, and here you get 500% in 10 years, right? So um, with regard to fusion, just a bit of background, nuclear power at the moment, you get a big atom like uranium, you split it, you get two smaller atoms, there's energy given off, that turns water into steam and you've got lots of radioactive stuff and it can go bang. But fusion is at the other end. You get really small atoms like hydrogen, fuse them together, fuse, push them together to make helium, lots of energy given off. We haven't been able – you can do it on the desktop. You can, in about two hours, do fusion on your kitchen bench at home but you won't get out more energy than you put in. 
it's going to cost you energy. Yeah, so that's the biggest, yeah, that's the biggest, biggest well, um, hurdle to get over, yeah. really. So that's what they're working the on? The amount of energy to put in to get out. Yeah. yeah, and there's a whole bunch of things. There's big things. Look up on Wikipedia, J-E-T. Uh, that's the Joint European... Taurus or something, and fusion in general. There's big scale and there's small scale. They're trying to do fusion in something like the size of a shipping container. We haven't got there yet. People are working on it. Watch this space. We've yeah. got so thanks, Ben. If we can get it cleaner, it'll be is the best option. Really. Oh, we definitely need it for space travel. I mean, this thirty kilometres a second sucks. I want to travel at one percent of the speed of light. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that. <laughs> We've got Pat here from Lane Cove. Doctor Pat, Dr. what's Pat, your question? Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Um, my question is, um, do sperm sleep and or dream? Um, we don't think they've got consciousness, but notice the word think. We don't even know what consciousness is. But amazingly, I was reading a paper on sperm last night. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, i just get the paper up here. Yeah, it was from the, the journal called Forensic Science International Genetics. And the paper, I literally was reading this last night, repeatedly washed semen stains, colon, optimal screening and sampling strategies for DNA analysis. Okay. If you're thinking about washing your sheets, take this on board. If you get semen stains on sheets and then you put them through a hotel industrial grade washing machine six times, you can still get enough DNA to give you a full genetic profile after six washes. What? Six washes. What? Exactly. What? Uh, secondly, um, when sperm dries, you can get you can leave it alone for decades and get full DNA <gasps> profile of the owner of that. That I can answer because I read this paper last night. Mm. Do they sleep and do they dream? Do they dream of electric sheep? That I don't know. Mm. But it's a deep question. I, I think we're heading into philosophy land in the supermarket aisle. Yeah. I'm just, that'd be a cute cartoon. <laughs> just a little sperm having a dream. Okay, we didn't give you that answer, but we gave you something but, else. And wash your sheets more than, oh, by the way, in the United Kingdom, according to the surveys, 4% of people wash their sheets once a year. Oh, I just, Bryce and Ebony were talking about that recently on breakfast, and mm -hmm. I just don't know how. What if? What about when you get sick or something, you know, and you've just been sleeping in your own filth? Yeah. You, you, uh, I don't want I'll, to shame anyone, but yeah. Well, talking about people being inadequate, when I was a drug-crazed hippie, I discovered a way to make sheets last longer. How? Vacuum them. <laughs> I think you said that once. Mate. <laughs> It's gross. <laughs> okay, moving. Okay, we can't answer with a sperm dream. Next person, thank you. All right, we got Zach here from Pat. Maryland. Zach, Zach, got a question about roses. Yes, I was wondering why, uh, when like roses are dead, why the thorns aren't as sharp. How did you discover this? I'm a gardener, so I oh. found that if I press my thumb into a like a thorn on a dead rose bush, it doesn't hurt as much as it would on a one that's alive. Ah, now, just for the audience, in the uh, military intelligence trade, we call this a ground int. That's short for intelligence. I couldn't waste time by saying intelligence. So there's sky <laughs> int and elent int, electronic intelligence. And you have given us, by being a, a gardener, you are a person who knows about this stuff because you're there on the ground with roses. What I'm That's guessing true. is that the thorn 
is a dynamic structure that is maintained to a sharp point, and I don't know why, via biological processes. And I'm guessing also that when the bush dies, gradually erosion happens to the surface, little insects, micro-creatures come along, little creatures with legs, and they start eating it, and the point has got the greatest surface area per volume, so they'll go for the point. Now, it could well be that in some cases you could have a biological degradation leaving the pointy bit lasting the longest, like it might have been made of a different metal like unobtainium or steel or something, but I'm guessing that because it's got the greatest surface area for the, the mass, that'll be most attractive to the little tiny creatures that just want to survive and make babies. That's my guess. we got Dean from Naruma. Dean, what's your question for Carl? Hi, Dr. Carl. Hi, Dr. Lucy. Dr. Dean. Um, I would enjoy a bit of astrophotography and I've always wondered why does the colours from a distant nebula or galaxy appear in the photos from the camera, but when we look at the same object through a telescope, all we see is grayscale. Ah, okay, and I'm going to let you in on a secret phrase that the astronomers have for their telescopes. It's two words, light bucket. So you get your light bucket and you leave it out at night and you catch all the photons that come into it. Now, it has two advantages over the human eye. Firstly, with the human eye, all you get that's coming in is coming in through a tiny hole, the pupil, at the front of your eyeball, maybe six, eight millimetres across. Whereas with a light bucket, you can go six inches, you know, in the old money, yeah, what's that, what's six inches, uh, 15 centimetres, up to, you know, a 14-inch telescope. You can buy them surprisingly cheaply now, all the way up to a metre and even 10-metre telescopes. So firstly, you're catching a whole lot of photons. But the second thing is this. Your eye is right here, right now. Some photons come in, they get turned into electricity, the electricity goes to the back of your head, and then forget it, then another one comes in, and another one, and another one, and they're all separate events. Whereas with your light bucket, you can catch your photons and then let them build up over not just a 30th of a second, but minutes and hours. And so you can get so many more photons and so much more information and you can build it up over a long period of time. I think there was that famous, what was the Hubble photo? Was it the 100-hour one? Or, you remember that one? I'm not, not familiar with that one. No. So, so the, the boss of the Hubble telescope had um, 10% of the viewing time. And the, the boss would allocate who would get viewing. And I think they did the, was it a thousand hours? And uh, what, what they decided to do, the boss, was just say, there's a bit of empty sky there. Our telescopes just pick up nothing. Let's just stare at it for, I think it was a hundred or a thousand hours, which they built up over a period of time. And suddenly you see all these galaxies, huge numbers, tens of thousands of galaxies right out to the edge of the universe. So the reason that the colours come through more richly is that instead of just having a 30th of a second, to get a small number of photons, you can build it up over hours and then you can get the colours coming through. Thank you for answering my question. Thank you, Dr. Dean. Um, 100 hours. Was it 100 hours, was it? Mm. Yeah, and it's just an amazing photograph. But, uh, and people are saying, but you're just wasting precious observing time. And we, we, this is another case of where you get surprises, as they say in science. If you knew what you were doing, it wouldn't be science. Mm, that's true. we got Sam here from Nimbin. Dr. Sam. Sam, welcome. G'day, Dr. Carl, Lucy. Um, my question's about oil. Um, I've heard that it's, I've seen a few references that it's actually abiotic in origin, so it's not from biological processes but purely geological. 
I was just wondering what you've got to say about that and what evidence supports our current theory of its origins. Um, in my case, I'm not an expert in anything. So what I go with is the overwhelming majority opinion of the scientists in a field. Um, you know, the 99% majority opinion. And the current majority opinion, but there is some movement to what you're saying, is that oil is made from biological material, so it is biotic, that falls not on land, but in the oceans in a period where there is no overturning circulation. So if you've got ice poles at the North and the South Poles, if you've got ice there, then you've got cold ice turning into cold water. In the case of the Antarctic, the cold water falls down to the bottom and then is pushed towards the equator. And it's pushed by so far by water falling below it that it goes all the way up the east coast of Australia, across the equator, and they've tracked it to Japan. So when you've got ice poles... And, and it's, uh, we've only had poles on the planet for the last 40 million years. When you've got icy poles, you've got overturning circulation and you do not get oil being formed. So it's when... So it's only an, when the poles are liquid. When, 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 when there's just liquid water, when, when there's no ice on, uh, at the poles. But th- this is still a contentious area, so I thought I'd just share that little bit about the cold water making it all the way up to uh, Japan. So the answer is... It's a minority opinion, but it's an interesting one and it could be correct. This is how science goes forward. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Sam. Kylie, in Butchler country. Kylie, you got a question about amnesia. Yes, that's right. So my question is, um, how do people still remember how to walk and talk when they've developed amnesia, say, from an accident, but they can't remember their family and their name, etc. Okay, we're talking here of the concept of distributed intelligence. So if you look at the difference mm-hmm. between us and the primates, the chimpanzees, the bonobos, the apes, we have a forehead that comes up and then it goes back. Whereas they've got a forehead that from above the eyebrows just goes straight back. We've got a thing called the prefrontal cortex, which helps us do the things that are uniquely human, that make us different from the apes, things like poetry, income tax, weapons of mass destruction. We do that with the prefrontal cortex and that's where you remember people's names. But you have distributed intelligence through your body. So if you touch something hot with your hand, the signal of heat goes up your arm to the spinal cord and the spinal cord, not your brain, decides to pull your hand back. And then it says up to your brain, hey, Kylie, you touch something hot, please don't do it, signed your brain, etc." So you have different bits of processing done in different parts of the body. And so you can have really weird specific bits of damage um, happening to the body and, and, and different things are left behind. So the classic, I'm going to give you a, a word you can use in a crossword, pandiculation. Mm. P-A-N-D-I-C-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. Okay. okay, I hope you use it one day. And that refers to yawning and stretching your arms at the same time. Now, this was discovered by an English doctor in the 1920s and he had some patients who had had strokes and therefore they could not move one arm. But he noticed that when they yawned, they could move that arm. So there's a different part of the brain that controlled the moving arm. There are two bits of the brain that control, control moving your arm, the yawn centre and the voluntary centre. So just think of the concept of distributed intelligence with different parts of the brain scattered through the body doing different things. 
Okay. Sweet. Sounds Thanks, good. Thanks, Kylie. Thank you, Dr. Kylie. If you. Ever, if you ever right. drop a mixtape, Dr. Carl, I think you should call it Poetry, Income Tax and Weapons of Mass Destruction. <laughs> Fire mixtape. We've got Brad here from Bunbury. Brad, what do you want to ask Carl? Yeah, good day, doctors. Um, I was thinking about um, cell regeneration in the body mm-hmm. and how, like, our bones and our skin and various other things, it gets broken, cut, anything like that, and it regenerates. But if you break your spinal cord or other things, um, they don't regenerate the same way. Now, the question is, do we understand what the difference is in those cells and can we, I suppose, genetically engineer spinal cells to operate like, say, a skin cell and regenerate. We are working on that pathway. The trouble with the nerve cells is that if there's a gap, they will grow a tiny amount, a very tiny amount. And if they're very close together and they haven't pulled back, they can join up. But usually the gap is too large and they can't bridge the gap. And we've had all sorts of ways of looking at this, such as there are certain chemicals called something, something, growth factor, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a whole area of research going all the way back to looking at the DNA and trying to trigger the DNA into getting the nerve cells to do what they did while you were still floating in the uterus and growing those nerves because the information is still there in the DNA. And what we've got to do is find it and trigger it and we're learning to do that. Um, We have managed to do that with regard to diabetes and in diabetes type 1, you lose the ability to make insulin. They spent $52 million, 20 years and 15 people and they modified the DNA of one person to start doing what it was supposed to do, following the instructions in the DNA and making insulin again. So we're trying to apply that knowledge. And $52 million versus the billions of dollars that type 1 diabetes costs us, cheap, a a drop in the bucket. Thanks, Brad. That was our last question. Thank you. you. Legend. Dr. Carl, this is us. This is us. We're here, you and me together alone, but not in a supermarket discussing the philosophy of why does it change from liquid measurements to gram measurements? Ha, I want to know. It's a viscosity. What a deep person. Looking at honey, custard, yogurt. That's it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. We'll be back again next week. If you want to be the first to know when that episode drops, make sure you are subscribed. You're on it. Science with Dr. Carl is produced by Joe Kahn. And I'm Lucy Smith.